This morning's reading is from the book of Psalms, chapter 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. He is haughty and your laws are far from him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush he murders the innocent, watching in secret for his victims. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed, they collapse, they fall under his strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, He won't call me to account? But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. You consider it to take in hand. The victim commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. The Lord is king for ever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed, in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for the truths that we've just sung. We thank you that you're a God who speaks. May we be a people that listen. But more importantly than that, we ask that your spirit would work within us so that not only do we hear things with our ears, but it starts to transform our minds, our hearts, and therefore our lives. So be with us now, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Would you please take a seat? It's been great to uh, be with you this morning and um, uh, nice to come and speak. Now, lovely to hear from Ray. Ray was pretty truthful in everything she said. I do everything, Ray tells me. That was the bit she... um, uh, I think Neil said at the beginning we're in a a series of summer psalms, we've called it, looking at some of the psalms over these summer weeks. And um, this is number two. We've got three more. And uh, this is Psalm 10. I I say it often when I preach on the psalms, but there's a a reason why Christians have treasured them so much down through the years. Uh, Many of the psalms express our human experiences in a way that make us know we're not alone. And that can be very encouraging. But more than that, not only do they speak to our human experiences, they express Christian experience in a way that reminds us that we're not strange or faulty uh, or the only one. There's something very encouraging, something very validating, reading through Psalms and hearing someone express exactly what we're feeling or going through, the same circumstances or worries or fears or concerns, uh, and then you get that, oh, it's not just me. Moment, And that can be a huge support for Christians in troubling times. I think we get this in Psalm 10. Uh, I'm yet to meet the Christian who's told me Psalm 10 is their favourite. 
you may be out there, come and tell me afterwards. In fact, I'm not even sure someone, has anyone ever told me 10's one of their favourites. But I think there's a sentiment in this psalm that is very well known, that's very familiar to all of us. And I'd encourage you to look through the psalm as we go through it. Either John will keep up with the PowerPoint or if you've got your Bible there, uh, look it up. Have a look at verse 1. This is very well known and very familiar to all of us. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Uh, Twice, the question on the lips of the psalmist there, the person who wrote the psalm is, why? But that question betrays a feeling which is, God, you're missing. At the precise moment when his closeness, his presence would be most appreciated or needed, it's felt that it's not there. He's distant or, even worse, perhaps he's absent. And suddenly, when you pause and reflect on those words, I'd be staggered if there's any person in this room today who hasn't wrestled at some stage with this fear, this worry, this concern at some stage of life. There may be some of you this morning feeling this particularly right now. That may be why you're not yet a Christian, because you feel that God is absent and you can't understand why he would be. Or you're struggling in your Christian walk at the moment and the feeling that he's distant or absent makes things even worse. And that's a natural thing to fear and to feel because one of the privileges that Christians hold on to most tightly and most dearly that brings most encouragement in daily life is the truth of Psalm 46 verse 1, if you remember that. Psalm 46 verse 1 has got a, a wonderful truth that it states in these words, the Lord is a very present help in times of trouble. And it's that term, very present, that makes such a difference for us as Christians. He's very present as we go through times of difficulty. He's with us. He's alongside us. The New Testament tells us the incredible privilege we've got. He's within us. That's how close he is. The presence of God is the joy of his people. So the opposite, the feeling that God's not present, not close, is awful. And notice, that's what the psalmist here is most disturbed about. In the second half of verse 1, it's not the times of trouble causing him such anxiety, it's the hiddenness of God during times of trouble. This is a feeling that comes to every Christian at certain stages of life. Where are you, God, when I need you? Is anyone there? Is anyone in charge? God, did you just kind of create the world by winding it up like an old-fashioned clock and then walk off and left it to its own devices? Are you on a break? Are you distant or absent from us? And when we go through different stages of life, we'll feel this more keenly, whether it's due to pain or loss or loneliness or doubt or whatever it may be, we will all cry out in some way, shape or form, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? But, interestingly, in Psalm 10, there's a very specific cause for the writer feeling this way. And it's not perhaps the reasons that we might expect. It's not because looming death is there, so they're going, where are you, Lord? It's not because of failing health. It's not because of broken relationships. No, as you continue to read through Psalm 10, what we find is that the psalmist is feeling alone and God being distant, that that springs out of unrest by looking out at the world and seeing wicked people, people living with no reference to God, and they seem to be fine. Now, can you picture what this psalmist is feeling and why they're doing it? Think about it. He looks out and he sees other people living without God 
and probably knowing that he tries to live a faithful life, tries to live for the Lord, he finds it demoralising because the wicked seem to succeed. The wicked seem to live with no consequences or repercussions for their actions. And so that's what he goes on to explain in the rest of the psalm. In verse 2, he starts to describe the wicked man. Have a look. In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, he doesn't seek God. In all his thoughts, there's no room for God. And what's the outcome for living all this way? Verse 5, his ways are always prosperous. He's haughty and your laws are far from him. He sneers at his enemies Nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. And then the the psalm carries on into the, the pain and misery and destruction that he causes for the weak and vulnerable around him. And so can you understand the guy writing this psalm? He's saying, what the heck, Lord? What's going on? Where are you? Why are you not around sorting this out? Why can the wicked prosper doing the things that they're doing and the implication is in the faithful kind of struggle in life and the rest of it? Here's a guy living a wicked life, damaging people around him, and he's winning at life. How? Why? Where are you, Lord? And so the psalm kind of breaks up into three sections. You've got verse 1, which is the lament, the question, why are you far off, Lord? Why are you hidden? Then verses 2 to 11 is the reason he's feeling this way. And what it basically is, is a description of the wicked. That's why he's causing these, this is what's causing the questions and making him feel this way, a description of the wicked, verses 2 to 11. Then from verses 12 to 18, it kind of changes tack and the psalmist starts to remind himself who his God is and what his God does. And so that's the big picture. We've already thought about the question in verse 1, so the, for the rest of our time I just want to look us, let us look at the, the, these two sections with two points. And the first one will take most of our time. So the first is from verses 2 to 11, and here we see the wicked living with pride. The wicked living with pride. Have a look at the wicked from these verses, from verse 2 onwards. And it's pretty clear what the main problem of the wicked is here. It is pride. Look at verse 2. In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak. Verse 3, he boasts of the cravings of his heart. Verse 4, in his pride, the wicked don't seek God and all his thoughts, there's no room for for God. Verse 5, he's haughty. And verse 6, I mean, if you were creating a theme song for the wicked, this could summarise all of it. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. It's all about him. Pride is the heart of his problem. But this pride that he has leads to two consequences in the psalm. And it's crucial that we see this and understand this. His pride leads to two things. Cruelty to other people and rejection of God. Those two things are spoken of time and time again in the first half of the psalm. His pride leads to cruelty to people and rejection of God. And I hope you can see that's normal. That's natural. That's what pride does. Pride, a view of self that kind of builds up, leads to indifference or apathy or cruelty to other people and it leads to ignoring and rejecting God. Those are two unavoidable results of pride. Uh, Let me explain that a little bit more. Every proud thought that that you and I can have is always in danger of producing a cruel thought or action. Because if we exalt ourselves, we will look down on others. Pride is impatient of other people. Pride hates rivals. Pride can't endure superiors or masters. Pride looks down and treats others badly. 
And in this psalm, that's exactly what you see. The proud, wicked man is cruel to other people. Verse 2, he hunts down the weak. Verse 7 is a staggering verse, really. It speaks of his mouth and tongue being like a weapon towards others. In fact, when it talks about the two aspects of the under the tongue, I'm sure that's the image of poison with snakes. Uh, that the tongue and the mouth is like a weapon towards other people from the proud. Verse 8, he ambushes and murders other people. Verse 9, he's brutal like a lion. Verse 10, he crushes. And whether literal or figurative, and remember this is a song, so it, it could well be figurative at this point, what it's saying is pride leads to this wicked person living for self in a way that doesn't care about others, makes things worse for others, is part of making life unbearable for others, all because of pride. And that should be a challenge to you and I, because you and I live in a culture obsessed at the moment with giving self-esteem and self-confidence and self, self, self. And I'll speak a bit more about that in a moment. So the man is proud. And if the trunk is pride, then one branch bearing fruit coming off the pride trunk is treating others badly. The other branch coming off the pride trunk bearing fruit will be treating God badly. And again, we see this in the first half of the psalm. Verse 3, he reviles the Lord. And the Lord there is in capitals. We know that that means Yahweh. That means this is the, the saving, gracious God that the wicked person reviles, hates. In verse 4, his pride means he doesn't seek God. In his thoughts, there's not even room for God. In verse 5, it says, the laws of the Lord are far from them. And that's what happens. If a person is proud... They have no use for God. Verse 4 is right. You don't seek, them, seek God. You live without reference to him. You don't even think about him. Pride is a huge barrier to God. The Pharisees didn't see their need for Jesus because they were proud of themselves. So they never accepted the Saviour amongst them, even though they saw what he did and heard what he said. You see it with the cross what are the two biggest barriers to people accepting what Jesus has done for them on the cross? I think both of them spring out of pride. For one group of people, it's how dare you say there's anything wrong with me and I need forgiveness or anything else, that's pride. For others, it's, well, I accept that I need something, but don't try and tell me Jesus has to give it to me. Don't tell me God has to give it. I'll fix the problem myself. That's pride. So pride will lead to rejection of God, not even thinking about God, as verse 4 puts it. Now, <clears throat> verse 4 looks cut and dry. They don't even think about God, but I actually think it's more nuanced than that because later on in verses 11 and 13, can we show verse 11 and then 13? We see more. We see almost the inner monologue of the wicked person and see that it's not just that there's no thoughts about God, it's wrong thoughts about God. In verse 11, the wicked think God's forgotten what people do. He never sees what people do. In verse 13, he puts it a different way, but it's a similar theme. He thinks God will never call to account the wicked for what they've done. Well, suddenly there's total relevance with today's world. The thought that God doesn't see our hearts, what we say, what we do, or he doesn't remember, or he doesn't hold people to account so that we can get away with things and be anonymous and there's no consequences. Most of the world today lives like that. And of course, that's part of the motivation why most of the world does such terrible things. We're at our worst when we think we can get away with things. We, we're at our worst when we think no one will see, no one will call to account when we're anonymous and no one will know what we've done. That's when we're at our worst. That's in every sphere of life. 
in, when you're playing rugby or league, where does all the niggle happen? In the scrum and the ruck, where people think they're not going to be seen by the referee or held to account. In Schindler's List, there's a, a well-known part that people who've seen the movie remember visually because it's about the little girl who's in the red dress, but a lot of people who've only seen the movie don't remember the big point about that particular scene. And the big point about that particular scene that hits Oscar Schindler is the Nazis are performing all sorts of atrocities in full view of this small girl in a red dress, and he realises that they do that because the Nazis think they'll never be called to account for what they do. It doesn't matter that people will see it because they will never have to answer for their actions. That's what human beings are like. If we think we're anonymous or there's going to be no consequences, we'll do even more. You don't have to look any further than the internet. The internet's an incredible blessing, but the anonymous aspect of the internet means that you see some of the worst of human nature associated with it. Things that people watch or record or write because no one knows what's going on between one person and their screen. No one knows uh, what the anonymous chat name is, that, that it's not you when you've written such kind of vitriol and awful thing. Most of us would never do that if we thought it was seen, was known, was consequences. That's what the wicked does. And it's pride that drives it. Pride that leads to cruelty to others and rejection of God. Now, some of you may have heard of Richard Hooker, who's uh, an old uh, Anglican theologian uh, back in the early days of the Anglican Church. He said this about pride. Pride is a vice which cleaveth so fast unto the hearts of man that if we were to strip ourselves of all our faults one by one, we would undoubtedly find pride the very last and hardest to pull off. Pride causes such problems. And yet, as I said earlier, our age, has, a, has there been a more selfish or narcissistic age than ours? Have we ever been, as humanity, more individualistic, more obsessed by image and clothes and looks and identity, more greedy and wasteful, more driven by the cravings of our heart that verse 3 speaks of and boasting in that than at any other time? I'm sure in one sense we have because the human heart kind of carries on the same. But at another level, it's incredible when you see it and look around. And our society at the moment focuses on self before anything else. You are the most important, we tell everyone. Your identity is key. Your rights, your happiness. You being offended is the worst possible thing that can happen. And it feeds into pride. As I raise our children, there's a sense that I don't want them to have self-confidence. I want them to have Christ-confidence. And there's a sense that I don't don't want them to have self-esteem I want them to know that they're known and loved by the one truly glorious creator and saviour God that they have. Then we will start to see ourselves rightly, not kind of lowly, oh poor me, I'm awful, but in a right spirit in front of the one true God rather than slipping into pride. Pride is awful and hidden. If someone does certain sins, you can see it and observe it, but pride is hidden sometimes even to ourselves. How much pride do you and I tolerate in ourselves? It's dangerous because if the trunk is pride, the branches of cruelty to others and rejecting God will grow. Put it to death. Knowing we're the creature and God is the creator, that helps put things in perspective and gets rid of pride. Knowing Jesus and all that he did for us on the cross, that helps us put things in perspective and keeps us from pride. Hard not to have humility when you know 
that God's son needed to die for you. Friends, I'd ask us this morning to put pride to death because then we're much more likely to treat others and treat God better. So that's the wicked living with pride in this psalm. But remember, there's more here than just the psalm talking about the wicked. The psalmist is expressing, and they seem to prosper. They seem to land on their feet all the time. How can that be? What are you doing, Lord? And so we move to the next part of the psalm, verses 12 to 18. And here, we don't see the wicked living in pride. We see the faithful knowing and trusting the Lord. The faithful knowing and trusting the Lord. In verse 12, the psalm changes tack. It's no longer focusing on the wicked guy. What the psalmist does is he starts pleading to God. God, arise and lift up your hand. He pleads with God, don't forget the helpless. And he reminds himself, the psalmist, that although the wicked think that God doesn't see what people do or hold them to account, the reality is quite different. Have a look at verse 13. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. You consider it to take it in hand. The victim commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man, who's of the earth, may terrify no more. There's incredible and great truths stated by the psalmist there. The wicked person thinks God doesn't see, God doesn't hear, God doesn't call to the account, but the psalmist reminds himself the truth is very different. Verse 14, you, God, do see. Verse 17, you hear, O Lord. Verse 15, call him to account. God sees and hears and acts. And you notice in that part of the psalm, it's not just against the wicked, although it is against the wicked, it's also for the humble and the vulnerable the fatherless and the oppressed. There's great words of comfort and power in this psalm and they're true. The Bible all the way through it speaks of the God who knows all. Not just the words spoken or the deeds done but the the, the thoughts of our hearts and from whom nothing is hidden, for whom everything is accounted. And when you know that that's God, that is both at the same time kind of good news and bad news. It's terrifying and comforting. For some of us, it's terrifying. We think that because we've got away with things so far, we always will. We won't. None of us will. It may look like prospering, but it's temporary and looks are deceiving. The Lord who sees and hears and judges and acts will hold all to account. But for some of us, those words are tremendously comforting. For those who've been mistreated, or broken or vulnerable. For those who are seeking to love the Lord and follow him, nothing is unseen. The things that have been done wrong to you, which no one else knows, and the pain you've suffered, the Lord knows, and it's taken into account. The things that you've done or not done in humility and love that no one else may have appreciated or known, the Lord knows. The Lord sees and knows. And more than that, he champions the lowly, defending, I love that word, the the oppressed and the fatherless. Know that, especially if you're here this morning feeling down and that, that no hanging on by a threat. Your father knows and he acts. The Lord does see, does hear, does judge, does act, does reign. He does call to account with all the positive and negative that entails. And the cross helps us know that with certainty even more than the psalmist would ever have known way back when they wrote it. 
There we see that everything matters, that nothing's ignored, that God acts. And the joy of Jesus is that in him we see even more clearly the truths that the psalm says in words we see in actions in the cross. And so as I draw to a close, what should we do when we feel in the same position as the psalmist? When we get down and we question God, where are you God? When I look at the wickedness and the, where are you? I'd encourage you and I to live in the light of the truths of this psalm. Notice the questions never answered. Twice he says at the beginning, why God? Why are you away? Why are you hidden? He doesn't get an answer to that why question. But what he does in this psalm is set a pattern for what I hope you and I will do as we live life. He asks the question, he spells out the problem, and then he reminds himself of the truth of who God is and what God has done, and presumably he just lives in the light of that, even though he hasn't got a specific answer. That's the life of faith. He knows that what he's experiencing at the moment is not what he would expect of God, so he cries out to the Lord. He spells out what the issue is. Then he reminds himself who his God is, what his God's done, and he lives by faith in the light of that. Friends, when you and I see the wicked living a good life and seemingly winning, that is very confronting. When we look at our own lives and see suffering or, uh, or the vulnerable struggling, that raises questions. Why, Lord? Why are you so far off? Why, are you not, why do you hide in these times? But then we remember Jesus. We remember what he's done. Remember what he's won for us. Remember the future he's secured for us. And we live trusting in that. What I want us to be, I don't know whether this illustration will work. It came to me yesterday. I kind of think it's dumb, but I'm going to finish with it. The truth is faith can be perplexed. It can be confused. But friends, the God that we follow is worthy of our trust. That's what I'm saying. The cross of Jesus is worthy of our confidence. The promises of God are worthy of our conviction. Remember them and then live in the light of that. What we don't want to be is weather vanes. Now, I don't know whether you thought I was going to say that or not, but that's what I'm, telling, that's what I'm warning us from, the evil of weather vanes. Don't be a weather vane. Do you know weather vanes? I'm getting a lot of confused looks. Those things on the top of houses or buildings, often like a rooster or an arrow or something like that, but the point is they're blown whatever way the wind's blowing. Whatever way the wind's blowing, that's where they end up pointing. If we're weather vanes, if that's us, whatever is going on in our life, whatever wind is blowing, whatever direction it's putting us, that will set the direction and course for our life. This psalmist would say, don't be a weather vane, be a compass. Again, I'm not sure if this works, but I need bear with me. Be a compass. Because a compass doesn't matter which way the wind's blowing. It doesn't matter what the external factors are. Let's not bring magnets into this. It doesn't matter what all that. The compass will still point in the true direction no matter what's going on around it. Our course, our direction, our, our home will still be set by something secure and stable. And it's looking at the Lord and remembering who he is, the things that he's promised, the things that he's done, that will give us our direction. Don't let your present circumstances do it. Don't be the weather vane. Let the God who sees, the God who hears, the God who acts, let him set our direction so that whether we understand everything or not, whether we feel upbeat and kind of positive or beaten down and low, our course is set secure and true. That's living by faith. That's what the psalmist does. And I pray that we, like the psalmist, will do likewise. Let me pray.
Father, I pray for uh, each of us in the area of pride. It's so hidden and so destructive and I pray that each of it, you'd reveal it to us so that we could put it to death, so that we would see our significance and importance in you, not anywhere else. Uh, But Father, even more than that, I pray that you would help us live by faith. We thank you for the privilege that you are close to us, whether we feel it or not. We thank you for the privilege that it's you who sets our course and has won us our future. And I pray that you would give each of us the strength this morning, whether we're feeling down or upbeat, the strength to know in confidence that you will prevail, that your cross changes everything, and one day you will return. And I pray that that might encourage our hearts and minds and help set out our path. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.